You ready for this? I'm not. So whatever happens, happens. Uh, yeah, so I am the president and CEO of Unity Worldwide Ministries. Um, some people just are curious to know that we do have 650 ministries around the world, if you did not know that. We have them in just about every continent. We have them in many of the countries, so it's very exciting. A lot of things to do in my position and the staff I work with, but we have a lot of fun. And really, we just exist to support what you're doing right here. And that's why we are in the business of Unity Worldwide Ministries. So today I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about um, a thought process. The question that comes to mind is, why am I here? Now, not why is Chad standing here on stage, but for you to ask yourself, why are you here? But not so big as to say, why am I here in this experience, but why am I here sitting in this sanctuary this morning? Why am I here? There's lots of reasons that people find their way into a unity ministry. A lot of times when we talk to folks, we find that there's been some sort of big life change that brings them into unity. It might be the loss of a loved one. It might be a marriage. It might be the birth of a new child. It might be a loss of a job. A big life change oftentimes is what brings people into unity. But why are you here right now? What is the purpose of being here? And maybe more importantly than why we are here is where are we going? Because we could just go to some sort of coffee shop and gather, right? We could just go to a community space and gather. We could go to a community center and gather. We could go to some other place and just gather. But why are we here in a unity ministry and where are we going? Some people talk about, you know, we come to a unity ministry because we want to have community. But again, we could do that just about anywhere in town, right? So then the assumption would be that we are here in unity, specifically in a unity ministry, because we're looking to spiritually grow. Is that a fair conclusion? Do you agree with that? So not just to have community, but also to grow in community. So it's interesting when we think about where are we going on the spiritual path. A lot of times we'll think about the spiritual journey as God is this sort of thing out there that we are striving for. If you look at other religions, they might call it enlightenment, or they might call it self-realization. We say God is this, we have this idea that God is this thing that I'm journeying towards, I'm trying to get to. And we imagine it's this over there, maybe it's in my 90s I'll find it, or my 70s, I don't know. We put it in our head that some way, somewhere, maybe it's in the Himalayas, I'm going to find God right there. In our minds, we do that because our minds think, in a linear fashion. We think about this, this if I'm on a journey, I'm here, and then God must be here. But if you've been on the spiritual journey for any time, you know it's definitely not a linear fashion. It's more like a roller coaster. You're kind of heading in the right direction, and you're spinning in the back in the wrong direction. Next thing you know, you're further back than from where you started, and then you're trying to go again, you're looping again, and you're not quite sure if you're making much progress, but you're hoping you are. Has anyone else experienced that? All right. So just me and ten other people are having that journey. The rest of you have already arrived. I'm glad to hear that. We'll turn to you for guidance. But you realize that the brain, it does make this idea that this is a journey, and ergo the journey must be from one spot to the next spot, right? And we see people that have arrived, we figure, oh, they must have landed at this spot right here. That's what the mind does. And so what it does is it takes this idea of God and puts it 
out there. It puts it at some place in time, some location, some place of being that's out there. Because that's how the mind works. If it's a journey, when I go hiking, I start at one spot, I end at another spot. So this journey must be the same. But that's not quite how the journey actually works when we look at it from unity's perspective. God is not something out there. Following me? Okay. Ten of you, we're going to rock at this. I'm excited that you're with me. Anyone else wants to get on this train, you're welcome to. So, the way I like to really visualize it, this journey to God, this journey to joy, this journey to divine bliss, really is kind of like a two-lane road. And right here, I'm standing in one lane. This is what we call the lane of struggle. This is pretty much the lane that most of us exist in 99.9999% of the time of our lives. And right next to us is the lane of God, the lane of spirit, the lane of bliss. It's not something that sits at the end of some road and some distant journey. It's actually parallel to us at all times. And if we really had the insight and the focus and the fortitude and the mindset, we could step into the lane of God. But we actually choose continually, day after day, thousands of times a day, day, to specifically struggle. Some of you, if you've lived long enough, realize that that is actually the case. I have designed a life where I am designed to struggle. And the fascinating thing is, it's not just about us. We actually live in a system and a society that ensures that you stay in the lane of struggle. Anyone else ever notice this? And that you're surrounded by people that will also ensure that you stay in the lane of struggle. That you will continually do the things that make you struggle. But God, bliss, divine joy, sits right here at any moment in time. And that's the thing that's really fascinating when you're in spiritual leadership and come to that realization is, it's really just right here. So why do I continually choose to struggle? When you think about it, it's thousands of micro choices a day. I wake up in the morning, I look at myself, and I go, my hair is ridiculous. It doesn't matter what product I put into this thing, it's going to look ridiculous. And that is a judgment. It's a self-judgment. It's a little knock to tear me down and put me again into the lane of struggle. And then I get into traffic, and I complain about that. And then I get to work, and I complain about the people around me. I complain about the work I've got to do. And then I see what's happening in the news, and it's just more things to complain about, more things to struggle. And I look at what's happening in the world, and what's happening in our culture, and what's happening to my body. And just thousands of times a day, I'm judging myself, I'm judging others. And next thing you know, I get to the end of the day, and I say, yes, I have chosen 1,000 times a day to make my life suffering. Isn't it odd that we do that? But the reality really is, has anyone in here, perhaps during meditation, prayer, or a hobby, lost themselves for even a split second and fell into the lane of bliss? Anyone? Raise your hand high if that's happened to you. So that is proof that it's not at the end of some distant journey. It's actually right here. If my mind would stop for a moment or even get distracted long enough for me to forget to keep suffering, that I will slide into the lane of bliss. 
perhaps some of you notice that as soon as you get there, you go, ooh, this is bliss, and you go, right back to the other lane. And that is the lifelong journey of meditation if you've been in that process. As soon as that, I'm there, oh, I'm out again. But if anyone has ever stepped into that lane and experienced bliss at any point in time, that is proof that it is not way over there. It's actually a very thin veil that sits right here. And the only thing keeping us from there is how we think about life. But here's the thing. We live in a world now where we're coming to a difficult realization that not all of us are living the same life. We live in a society where some individuals are actually suppressed more than other individuals based on the color of their skin, based on their gender identity, based on their class, based on where they grew up, based on all sorts of factors. We're actually finally having an open conversation about the fact that not everyone is living the same life. In fact, that our systems are in place to suppress some people more than other people. You following me? And so here I stand as a white, cisgender, heterosexual, middle-class male, which pretty much sits at the top of the pyramid of privilege in this society that we are in today. This society was built by people like me to favor people like me and to suppress people unlike me. So now to be a little bit uh, ignorant of me, to say that, well, everyone has equal access to God. It's just a tiny little step over here. When you realize that some people have a meditation studio in their home, and some people are struggling to figure out how to feed their kids this afternoon. You see what I'm saying? It seems like it might be a little bit more easy for someone to step into the meditation studio in their own home or the yoga studio in their own home or the infinity pool outside the glass patio and say that, oh, we've all got equal access to God. When one person woke up this morning figuring out how am I possibly going to get food into my kids' mouths by this afternoon. They're not thinking about meditation. They're not thinking about necessarily about prayer. They're thinking about survival. So then the question comes to my mind, is there really equal access to God? Because I don't want to be ignorant and assume that there's equal access to God because I sit in this place of great privilege and be really ignorant for me to tell other people, oh, there's equal access to God and it goes easy for you to say. And by the way, I have been called out on saying that in a very public setting. So I pondered that thought and had to think about, is there equal access to God? If God is right here, I truly believe God is right here. God is not some distant thing that I have to journey to. God is right here. Then what keeps us from having equal access to God? Well, one thing is ourselves. The more I condemn myself and I condemn myself and I condemn other people and I buy into the system and I watch the media, that's just constant toxic negativity pouring into my consciousness. Folks, turn off the news. If you want to do anything for your life, turn off the news. Just constant toxic negativity. You just can't overcome it as an individual. But that's a completely different platform, different talk. Anyway, thinking about this, Okay, you've got this lane. Right? We say it's a two-lane road. We've got God right here. We've got me right here. I'm in struggle. God's bliss. 
But what I'm doing every time I do a little judgment about myself and life and I get negative things, I put a little brick between me and the lane next to me. And I put another little brick between me and the lane next to me. I put another little brick between me and the lane next to me. Now it's a little bit harder to get over there. Now I'm building a wall between me and God. But then I thought about, well, if I'm in a society that's suppressing me and actually actively the society is telling me you're the wrong color, you're the wrong gender, you're the wrong identity, society is also putting bricks in between me and God that I'm going to have to overcome. These are bricks I'm going to have to overcome. I'm laying some, and now society is laying some on top of that. That doesn't seem very fair. We've got this wall now between us and God, this consciousness wall between us and God that's being built up higher and higher and just pushing us down further and further and making it that much more difficult to step into this lane of bliss because now I'm spending the majority of my day trying to survive as opposed to thinking about my spiritual journey. But here's something to consider. Circumstances in life, which we just talked about, the circumstances in life can make it more difficult to get to God. We'll say in unity that God is easily, easily accessible everywhere all the time, but that's a little bit quick to say. If you've tried to access God, you go, ah, it's not quite that easy. And I had this realization, I call it the pesky fly. I was in this beautiful space. I was outside by this pool. I was on vacation. I'm like, I'm going to meditate. It's a beautiful place. I sit out there and meditate. I got a fly trying to crawl in my nose. Have you ever tried to meditate when something's trying to crawl into your body? You are not going to find a moment of peace with that happening. And that's the realization that circumstances in life can restrict your access to God. That's just a fly. Now think if there was an entire media outlet designed to make you feel less than. There's an entire society or financial system designed to make you feel less than. It's really hard to get into that place of bliss with all that stuff happening. So circumstances in my life, I had to come to this conclusion, circumstances in my life, circumstances in anyone's life can restrict their access to God, can make it more difficult to do that work. But those circumstances do not make God any more distant. You follow me? God is still right here, accessible, but the circumstances in my life are making it difficult for me to access it, to realize it, to come to that connection. But the beautiful thing about the realization we have in unity is that mind, consciousness, is the great equalizer on the spiritual journey. Mind is the great equalizer. Mind is what creates an equal playing field. Think about this. Do you personally know, or have you heard of someone who seems to have everything anyone would ever want in life that has no connection to God whatsoever, joy or bliss? Have you ever heard or known of someone like that? Now, on the other side of it, have you ever heard or known of, of someone who seems to have absolutely none of those things and has a deep and powerful connection to God. So therefore, we conclude that it is possible that even having all the amazing trappings and benefits of life doesn't bring you closer to God. And that being in a place of struggle doesn't mean it's necessarily going to take you away from God. Mind is the great equalizer. But that doesn't mean that I just sit back and go, okay, well, then it's your problem to get the bricks 
out of the way between you and God. I'm in a place of privilege, then I have to actively work to help remove some of those bricks in between you and God. Societal systems, religious systems, financial systems, media systems that are suppressing people. So at least we're all kind of starting on the same playing field to get to God. Does that make sense? So it's not fair that you might have struggles in life. It's not fair that you might have a fly trying to crawl on your nose all day long. It's hard to think about God when that's happening. So I want to actively work. So perhaps you've heard this saying, we create our life experiences through our way of thinking. Has anyone heard that? It is our third unity principle, so I hope you've heard it. If you haven't heard it, that concerns me. So we have five basic unity principles. And I'm going to read them from number one down to number five, just to remind us what they are. God is the source and creator of all. There is no other enduring power. God is good and present everywhere. That is number one. Number two, we are spiritual beings created in God's image. The Spirit of God lives within each person. Therefore, all people are inherently good. That is number two. Number three, we create our life experiences through our way of thinking, as we just said. Number four, there is power in affirmative prayer. I would also add spiritual practice and meditation, which we believe increases our awareness of God. So this practice increases our awareness of God. And then number five, knowledge of these spiritual principles is not enough. We must live them. Now, I was meditating on the five principles, and I was meditating on this idea of what is our journey in unity? Where are we actually trying to go? What are we trying to get there? Get to? How do we get there? What are the steps we take to get to God? What is this process we do that? I was meditating on the five principles, thinking about what is really their value. They just seem to sometimes fit in unity as just concepts we say. But is there really value to them? And it came to me in meditation to flip them upside down. I just had this feeling of just flip them upside down. So when you actually come at it, instead of looking at number one, we actually start with number five, as if it's a ladder to climb. Number five says, knowledge of these spiritual principles is not enough. We must live them. The very first thing we need to do to unity and on the spiritual path is commit to do the process. We must live them. If we're not going to commit to actually do the process, the other four steps are completely useless. There's no reason to even talk about the other four steps if we're not actually going to commit to live them. Do you hear me? It's all just lip service and debating and mental playgrounds of nothingness. If we don't actually commit to live it, it's useless. Everything in unity is useless. Every spiritual teaching you've ever heard of is useless if you don't actually commit to live these principles. That's a harsh reality to come to. Would you agree? Every book you've ever read is pointless. If you're not actually going to apply what it's talking about. So very first thing we need to do on a spiritual journey is actually commit to living what we're going to learn. Could you, I mean, that seems pretty logical. Would you agree with that? Is it possible we skip that, though? How important that is? Knowledge of these spiritual principles is not enough. We must live them. Then... If we have committed to do that, the second principle, number four going up on the list here would be, 
There is power in affirmative prayer, meditation, spiritual practice, which we believe increases our awareness of God. Finally, we start learning tools in unity on this journey. First, we committed to do what we're going to learn. And now we come from five to four. Now we start learning the tools, prayers, affirmations, spiritual practice, the things we're actually going to do on a daily basis because we first committed to actually live what we're talking about. You following me? But it's not going to do a whole lot of good if we just talk about it. We'd have to actually be living it. So now we're living the tools. We're starting to learn the tools. We're starting to apply the tools every single day and living actually what we've committed to live. Then we get to number three. We create our life experiences through our way of thinking. We're putting these tools into practice and realizing, you know what? My thoughts are designing my life. My thoughts are literally designing my life. What I believe to be true about life makes that true for me in my life. But you would not get there unless you had committed to do the work every single day and you started putting these tools into practice every single day and then you'd have an aha moment and truly realize not only are my thoughts creating my life, I can actually change the way I think and redesign my life how it should be. I can co-create my life with God instead of thinking that I'm a victim of life. Are you following me? If we actually got to number three and realized that we are co-creating our life with God through the way we think, then we might be able to get to number two, which is we are spiritual beings created in God's image. The Spirit of God lives within each person. Therefore, all people are inherently good. And then you say, all people... All people are inherently good. Right now, you've got someone that's popped into your mind. You're like, no, they're not. They are not inherently good. But that's the thing. That's where we are because we have not done five, four, and three. That we're still in a place where we believe all people are not inherently good. That there actually are evil people out there with evil actions and evil things they're doing. But if we had done this process and we had actually worked our way up, we would come to the realization that, in fact, all people are inherently good. They could not be anything other than that. That doesn't mean they're not showing up as their highest and best all the time, but they are inherently good. Could you imagine going out through a life with the understanding, the unwavering understanding that anything, everyone you meet is inherently good? It would change the way you see the world. You couldn't watch the news because all it's telling you is that everyone is inherently bad. So if you got to the place, you committed yourself, you learned the tools, you put them into practice, you recognize that your consciousness is affecting the way you live, and then you recognize that all people are inherently good because they are children of God, you could not then help but come to, number one, God is a source and creator of all. There is no other enduring power. God is good and present everywhere. We come to the realization that there is only God, there is only good. But you imagine that you would have to have done a lot of work and realization to come to the place that all I see in any given moment, in any direction, is that there is only God and it is only good. It is this chair, 
It is the animals on this planet. It is the trees. It is the water. It is the people. It is consciousness. It is all things. It is all God. It is all good. I couldn't possibly get there, though, unless I had done this process. But what we want to do in unity is skip to number one. It's all good. It's not all good. Because there are four other steps to get to and master. I'm not just talking about on a weekend you went through the four steps. I'm talking about through a lifetime you mastered these four steps to come to the realization of step five. Number one, God is all there is. How could I possibly harm someone else in this experience knowing that that is also God? That is also me. How could I possibly harm this planet? How could I possibly harm my brothers and sisters and nature knowing that it is all me? We are all one. Not, we're all one, the slogan. We're actually, the only thing that exists is God. So where am I going? I really think we should be thinking about this in unity. Where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? What is the goal here? We're not just here to talk about things. We're actually here to spiritually unfold. And is that happening? Well, there was a time, when I look back at our, our founders, Charles and Merle Fillmore. I would say that these were big thinkers and authentic livers. They thought big. When they first came up with the concept of unity, the first thing they started doing was publishing it and sending it around the world. They didn't just like go to their living room and go, this is kind of cool, let's sip some tea and talk about it. They're like, whoa, everyone on the planet needs this message. We need to gather people, we need to publish, we need to get this thing everywhere. They're huge thinkers. They just thought, huge, we could actually transform the planet with this message they had found. And coupled with that, they were authentic human beings. They right then and there, they wrote a covenant that they were going to live exactly what they believed. And in that covenant, they actually said, and we know that Spirit will give us everything we need because we're going to live exactly what we believe. They were authentic and they thought big. Are we still doing that today? As we travel around, unfortunately, we see a lot of little thinking and not authentic beings. There's little thinking. We're talking about, I don't know if we're going to make our budget. I don't know if we're going to fill our seats this Sunday. I don't know if we're going to have enough for this. I don't know if we're going to have enough for that. I don't know if we can talk about this. I don't know if we should talk about that. The filmers are talking about, we're going to transform the world. Are we still thinking like that? Are we still living like that? Are we showing up so that no matter where anyone sees me at any given point in any given day, they go, that person absolutely believes what they talk about. Think about that. Any moment during your day, could someone catch you and say, yep, that person absolutely believes and lives what they're talking about. So definitely hold yourself accountable to a higher bar. So I think that Fillmore's, our founders, set a really high bar for us. They had really high expectations. They were healing people by the thousands all around the world with their message. And they were getting letters all the time about miraculous healing. That was a hundred years ago. 
I can only imagine that they thought a hundred years from then we would be doing exponentially more amazing things. But did we carry that baton forward or did we let it drop there? There are people doing amazing things in unity. There is this incredible potential of what's happening in unity. But are we really ready to do what they are talking about? So going back to their inspiration, Jesus Christ says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Greater works than these. Greater works than these. Well, our founders 100% believed that. That that was not a select few that might do greater things. All of us were supposed to be doing this. Charles Fillmore said, Out of the air we may manufacture the things we eat and wear. This is not a flight of fancy. It's not an assumption of theoretical metaphysics that we may be able to make our food and clothing from the air, but a logical conclusion that follows the understanding of God as the omnipresent source of all that appears. If you got to hear, and God is all there is, and you have complete access and understanding that God is all there is, how could you possibly lack of anything? Food and clothing would be your last thought, because it is just is. You're manifesting anything you need into consciousness, because that's all there is at that point. Co-founder Myrtle Fillmore said, there is no limit to this so-called, she puts a quote, miracle that can be performed by those who consecrate themselves wholly to do the will and the work of Christ. Those that consecrate themselves wholly, not those that are like, yeah, I'll give it a shot once in a while. I'll think about it once a week. That consecrate themselves wholly to do this work. She said there's no limit to this so-called miracle. And I think, this is my perception, she said so-called miracles because what people were calling miracles at the time, she's like, that was breakfast for me. You're calling this a miracle? That was my average day. What we call miracles is supposed to be our average way of living. It was supposed to be the baseline. What we consider to be amazing and miraculous today. That was supposed to be the baseline of how we live. Are we really ready to think big again and live authentically again in unity? Are we really ready to live into what I foresee was the vision our founders had for us today? What do you think? You probably can't answer that right now because it's really a lot of soul searching to say, am I ready to actually consecrate myself to this process. To stop just dabbling in it and dipping my toe in it once in a while, to actually consecrate myself to this process. Well, I can stand here and testify that those who do are experiencing the miracles that our founders were experiencing and more. All throughout the movement. That potential exists for us right now. God is right here waiting for us to stop laying bricks in between us and the divine and to actually tear down that wall and step into God is all there is. But it will require us to commit ourselves to do this work, to learn the tools, to change the way we think, to recognize everyone 
as inherently good and to recognize there is only God and God is all good. And that is the truth of our experience. We're going to go into a moment of meditation. So invite you, if you're comfortable, just to sit with your spine straight, to allow your shoulders to relax. Take a nice deep breath. And release any tension that might have gathered into your body, no matter how it got there. Recognize that there is this presence that we call God that flows as spirit into our consciousness as to Christ. Many times we can feel that energy flowing through the body, and for you right now it might be a tingling in the feet, in the palm of the hands, the top of the head, the lower back. You might sense that when you're still enough, you do, in fact, feel this energy moving. This flow. This stillness. Reminding us that it's not something that's distant and far away, but that it's actually here right now. Simply waiting for us to release all the distractions, all the negativity, all the judgment, all the fear slow down the rapid pace of life. Allow the mind just for even a moment to take a break and to be still. Our founders referred to meditation as going into silence. The stillness. Because we so rarely allow ourselves just to slow down and to be and silence. But that in of itself is a miraculous opportunity. Now we're going to take a moment to drop ourselves into the silence and to sit with the communication in our body, the still small voice, Christ within, and just be. Just be still. 
and to reconnect. Lord, we go forth now from this time of stillness and silence. We hold on to that presence, that feeling of peace and calm for the rest of this day and the rest of this week. offer you just a small challenge. If you have a daily practice of some sort, increase it. If you do not have one yet, just give yourself five minutes in the morning to just do what we just did. Give yourself another five minutes in the evening. Put the phone down and do what we just did. And when you're comfortable with five minutes, go to ten. When you're comfortable with ten, go to fifteen. And so on. And that's how you're right. Thank you.